Well, if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. It's, uh, people have asked me why I don't just stay in Corinthians. Well, first of all, the, the, top, the next topic is sex in your life. So I think Pastor Phil asked for it. He's going to have to give it. But we're on the radio, you understand, and if we miss um, a chapter, if I do a chapter in, 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 in Corinthians and it doesn't go on the radio, then we have callers calling asking for the missing program, okay? So I, I, I told Pastor Phil, he will do all of Corinthians, especially when he announced that sex would be the next subject. So don't miss next week as we start to learn everything we can about sex. Come with all your questions. Uh, Fill them out. I hope he can answer all of them. The book of Revelation. You know, when I was a kid uh, growing up, I I was born on Sunday. Uh, I don't know if that's special or not. My wife was born on Sunday. But I was born on the Sunday that the pastor of our church came to the church. My dad was the uh, chairman of the pulpit committee. They had worked for a year to find this uh, man. And uh, the church was in Oakland. It was growing rapidly. They were... Uh, moving from their location to another one because they had outgrown their facility. And uh, the day I was born was the first day he was in the pulpit. I spent 27 years in that church. I grew up in that church. It was a successful church. It had several thousand in attendance. This was during a time when churches weren't known to be really large. And uh, as I went through those 27 years, I watched the church go through a genesis. I watched uh, families leave. I watched us become um, an armed camp, putting everyone to the test. And today the church no longer exists. And it's really a a great sadness. That pastor married Luanna and I. Um, I have fond memories growing up in that church. And I I asked the question, what happened? I, I met with a friend of mine not too long ago, and we had the same discussion and we were able to list 35 churches that we knew of when we were teenagers that were happening churches that today are not open. 35 churches. And I have a burden for Valley and for any church that is succeeding to avoid the perils of failure. And so I bring us to the second chapter of Revelation And rather than trying to preach the material, just let me teach the material because I believe the material itself speaks to this issue. Notice uh, what uh, John writes. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't it funny how God works? Um, Here's John. Uh, He'll end up being the only apostle that's not martyred. And he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Many believe that prior to his exile to the Isle of Patmos, he was actually the pastor of this church. Have you ever felt like you were in exile and wondered what God was doing? (laughs) Why am I here? John, in the peak of his ministry, the only remaining disciple, most have now been martyred, uh, finds himself on an island and he's got to be wondering what is going on in my life. And on that island, Jesus Christ shows up, the, the living Savior, and he dictates, first of all, uh, to him seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, we don't know why he picked these churches. Uh, I wish the text would tell us. These were not necessarily the most popular churches. He left out Colossae, which was a growing church, and He left out several of the other churches in that area, but he picked these seven churches, and and we don't know why. And Paul must have been, uh, John must have been absolutely amazed that the Lord would show up and use him in this way. In fact, isn't that the way God works? When we think that uh, it's all over and we're kind of in a far wasteland, all of a sudden he shows up in our lives in ways that we can't, would have never imagined. And, And that's, I'm sure, what went through John's mind. Uh, And and in fact, in chapter 1, we get the description of Jesus as he shows up. Um, John says in verse 4, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from from him who was, who is, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. You know, there's a huge echo up here. I don't don't, uh, know what that's about. Can you hear that echo? But I'm kind of getting beat up here. and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us. Notice it's not past tense. Does your Bible say that? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Through the death of Christ, we've been freed from our sins, and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I love that. Uh, I love that description of Christ. And then uh, John describes the very image of Christ showing up. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, verse 9, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, he, the Roman Empire did not want him to continue to proclaim the gospel, and so they put him in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He didn't go there to write the book of Revelation. He went there as an exile. He had no idea that he was going to write the book of, of Revelation. On the Lord's Day, and probably this is not on Sunday, um, this whole topic of the book is the, the Day of the Lord. It's about the wrath of God. And so he begins that process as God is going to begin to unfold all of the answers to the questions the psalmists and all the Old Testament prophets had asked for for centuries. When will God judge 
uh, the sinner? When will God judge sin? When will God save the, the, the believer? On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of the death of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. I think that's the outline for the book of, of Revelation. The next two chapters will be what he, he sees. And the remaining chapters will be what takes place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you get that imagery here. The, the stars that he sees are the angels. And so he writes then to the angel. Who, who is the angel? That's a huge amount of material written on that. And I think uh, he's not talking about spirit beings. Though this word is used predominantly in the New Testament to talk about angelic hosts, you know, spirit beings, it's used uh, uh, frequently to speak of men. Jesus called uh, John the Baptist, my messenger, used this word. It's really the, the Greek word angelos, which we've uh, created the word angel from, and it really means my messenger. And I think he's talking about a human being, a messenger of the church of Ephesus. Uh, many believe it might have been the pastor or one of the pastors, but someone who's going to take this message back um, to, the, to the church. And it's interesting that uh, the, the messengers here are seen in, in his hand. Uh, he, he talks to the uh, messenger of the church of Ephesus. They, the church of Ephesus was an interesting church at this time. It wasn't a small little dinky church. In fact, of all the churches of Asia Minor, it was the going happening church. I don't know what church you think of in terms of uh, the famous church in America today. There are some huge ones. Uh, Joel Olstein uh, speaks to 32,000 people every Sunday morning. Uh, Saddleback, uh, Rick Warren speaks to 24,000 on the weekend. Uh, Bill Hybels speaks to 35,000 every weekend. These are the big churches in America. Um, they would pale in comparison to the church of Ephesus. When you read uh, in Acts chapter 19, you find the church of Ephesus was a, a phenomenal church. Paul went there, and uh, he first went into uh, the temple. He first met a few guys who had been saved or had, had heard John the Baptist's gospel and had not heard about the resurrection of Christ. And so, in a sense of the Old Testament, they were believers. And, and Paul leads them to the Lord. He then goes into 
the temple and he begins to debate with the priests in the temple, he gets a lot of resistance. Some are saved, um, but after about three weeks, he moves outside of the temple and for almost three years, he, he, um, he occupies a lecture hall in which he proclaims the word of God. According to the 19th chapter of Acts, that act, that three-year time of Paul there, touched the entire Asia Minor with the word of God. It says all the Jews and all the Gentiles heard the word. The word was held in such reverence that they would not speak against it, even those who, who did not believe it. The, the city of Ephesus was the San Francisco of its day. It, its, its one claim to fame was that it held the seventh wonder of the world, the great temple of Artemis, the great goddess. And so people came from all over the world to see this seventh wonder and to worship at the feet of this goddess. And it's into that environment that Paul brings the gospel, the good news. People were being saved by the droves. In fact, uh, so many people were being saved that the, the idol building business was going broke. And, and so they have a huge riot in, in, in Ephesus. The, uh, Demetrius, who is the, the main guy who builds idols out of silver, um, starts a commotion and it takes over the entire city. It consumes the city for a day and a half, two days. Why? Because they're losing their business. <laughs> no one's buying idols. Everyone's getting saved. This was a church of incredible ability. This was a church of, of, of incredible potential. Think about, think about the advantages that they had that we don't even have. They had Paul for three years. Paul wrote a letter to them. He wrote two letters to their pastor, First and Second Timothy. They had more knowledge than any church in existence had. For they had the very man who was writing the word of God with them. If there was any church that would succeed, it was this church. And that's why this letter catches us off guard. Because uh, 43 years later, after they had started, this letter is dictated by Christ through John to the messenger at Ephesus. And And notice how this letter reads. Christ describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The same language is used about our eternal security when we're told that that Christ has the believer in his hand and no one can take him out of the hand, that that the, the Lord Jesus Christ is holding the leadership of the churches accountable and secure and safe. The, the second thing that we notice is he walks among the, the seven golden lampstands. Now, we may not understand that today, but Jesus is here. Jesus is present in the churches today. He walks among the churches. They are his church. They are his body. A church is not a building. Um, when he writes to Ephesus, he's not writing to buildings. Buildings won't become a reality for another 340 years. He's talking to people. We're the church. And so when he talks to the church of Ephesus, he's talking about the believers who come together. And he walks in their midst, and he walks in their midst so personally that he knows what they're doing. Is that interesting? He says that. He says, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and, 
and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then down in verse 6, he says, uh, you, have, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This was a church of a lot of activity. This was a church that had a lot of deeds. They were doing a lot of things. They were doing the right things. He praises them for that. This is a church that was exhausted in their work. The, the, the word that's used there for hard work is literally the, the concept of the aftermath of having worked hard, the exhaustion, that you can't hardly move as a result of that. that that's how hard this church was working. And, and they, they wouldn't tolerate immorality. They wouldn't tolerate wicked people. They put people to the test who claimed to be apostles. That was a big issue in the time. Remember, Paul was challenged several times about his apostleship. And so the church was challenging people about whether or not they were apostles, and they found them to be false. Uh, they even hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We don't know quite who they were, but we, 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 we think that they were a group that tried to bring legalism back into the church through a sect and the church opposed them. They, they, they rejected their teachings. They rejected their false teaching. This was a church that endured hardships for his name, and they made it through the process. And you would ask from a human perspective, well, why, why the problem? Because he has this one thing against them. He says, you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. What does that mean? Do you remember what it was like when you were first saved? Do you, do you remember the excitement you had? I, I was only seven years old, but I, I still to this day remember that my whole worldview changed. The whole way I saw myself changed. The way I saw my mom and dad changed. I actually appreciated my mom and dad, who I thought God had put on this earth to get in my way. Uh, I had a love for the word I had a love for the Savior. I had a love for God's people. If you remember the last time I talked, we talked about the DNA of the, of the early church. That's the, the love that you see expressed, the, the love for one another, the daily sharing, the going from house to house, the meeting of needs, the, always the constant awareness of Jesus' great presence in their midst. And, and they had lost their first love. I... I I have to ask the question, why? And I'll come back to that because I believe I know the answer. Christ says this, remember the height from which you have fallen. Now, this is a church that had a lot of good things for it. If you were looking for a church, you might like this church. But he said that they had fallen at such a great height that they needed to remember and go back and repent and do the things they did at first. If they don't repent... He says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Here's Jesus speaking. And he says, if you do not change, I'm going to come and remove your testimony. Pastor Phil and I were talking years ago about churches that close. And he made, I thought, a profound statement. He said, I believe that Jesus is closing more churches today than Satan is. Here. Jesus is going to close this church. He's going to close their doors. And in fact, historically, that happens. They go on for another couple of centuries, kind of just being the, the, the focus of some discussion, but they lost their vibrance. You go there today, there is, there's not a, even a remnant of the church. 
So we need to know if we're Valley Bible Church and we're the people of Valley, what happens? Because when a church closes its doors, all of us suffer. And I think that one of the things that we have to understand is that when we get advice, we need to be careful how we take it. Look at Acts chapter 20. Paul is um, he's, uh, going to Jerusalem to deliver an offering, and this is the last time he'll ever be in this region. Now, he senses that. He doesn't know it for sure, but he will, he will um, go from this region, and he will end up um, being arrested. He'll go to Rome. He'll die at Rome. And so his sense that this is the last time he's ever going to be in the region proves to be, um, proves to be accurate. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, the text tells us that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came to the province of Asia. I I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house I have declared both to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus and now compelled by the spirit I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me, warns me that prison and hardships are facing me However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among now that I now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. And then the text goes on and tells us that they walk with him down to the boat. Verse 37, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was a statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him then to the ship. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, look out. I want you to understand that you're going to face some enemies. This was God's word. Paul was not delivering something he made up. But what happened was they took his advice so seriously, it became their marching orders. They learned to love the Bible and not the God of the Bible. They became great Pharisees. They put everyone to the test and found them to be false. Did you see that in the language that Christ dictates? 
You see, it's easy to move from a church of great love and great warmth to a church that's right. The temptation for us is to worship the Bible, and the Bible was not given to us to worship. The Bible was given to us to reveal the God of the universe that we might worship him. And when a church moves to the place where they worship the Bible and they forget the God of the Bible, they're in dangerous territory of losing their testimony. The church that I grew up in um, started to take on Billy Graham because he invited people of other denominations to join the platform. And that became our cry. Sunday after Sunday, we heard anti-Billy Graham sermons until uh, the people who loved the Lord just kind of left. And the church began to dwindle. On one Sunday, we lost 340 families over one sermon. This church is only 43 years old. We're 40 years in a year. And we face the same dangers as a church if we, uh, if we do not go back to our first love. Why is that important? Well, we get just a glimpse of it. I won't have you. Well, I will have you turn there. Look at John chapter 21. I love this chapter because it, it, it says something of Peter. And it says something about the church. And we may miss it. Do you remember, this is the story of Peter. Do you remember Peter? Peter's the guy who uh, the text says, having nothing to say, he said... I mean, can you relate to that? Peter was the guy that had the foot-shaped mouth. Uh, you know, Peter was the guy that had the audacity to tell God what the program should be. And, and Christ had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I, I can relate to Peter, okay, because I've done a lot of those stupid things myself. Now, you've got to remember that when uh, Peter writes First and Second Peter, that's the end of his life. He's the epitome of maturity by then. So there's hope for all of us. But here's Peter. Peter has denied the Lord. He has been the first to rush to the tomb to find it empty. Uh, He's now fishing. Now that's interesting because uh, Christ said several times in the, the Gospels as he called these men, he called them to be fishermen of men and the text says immediately they left everything and followed him. But as soon as something got bad, they went back to their fishing. Have you ever done that? You know, we tend to retreat to our comfort zone when things go bad. And we forget that we made a commitment to not go back to the old way. Well, Peter goes back there several times. Well, here, here, he's fishing again. And he sees Christ on the shore. Now, he does a thing. People have tried to explain this to me, and I just don't get it, okay? I know I'm really, my intelligence suffers. But... um, he puts his clothes on, jumps in the water, and swims to shore. I, I think you would take them off and jump in the water. But he puts all of his clothes on, jumps in. He can't wait for the boat to get to the shore. He wants to, he wants to meet with Jesus. And so uh, Jesus uh, asks them if they've caught anything. They, they pull in their catch. It's a huge catch. They, they eat. Now, I love this, okay? They eat. The resurrected body will have food without calories oh it's got to be that way if I'm on Weight Watchers for the rest of eternity I can't imagine what hell's going to be like they eat isn't that wonderful they eat and and then um, 
in verse 15 of John 21, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he tells him a strange thing. I tell you the truth that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now you may miss the impact of this passage because of the language. There are two words that are used for love uh, in, the, in the Greek Koine language. And, and the first word is the word um, agape. Uh, it, it talks about a sacrificial love. If I love you this way, um, my love is no charge. You can't earn it. I'm commanded to love you in this way. It's the, the love that God had for us, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world. That's the, the, the sacrificial love, the, the love that allows me to sacrifice for your benefit, to make you the object of my attention without you having to pay me. No reciprocity. You may not like me, you may be an enemy, but I'm going to love you in that way. And for that reason, Paul defines that love as patient, kind, and he gives us some measurements there. The second word that's used for love is the word philao, and we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love from it. It's a reciprocal love, it's a friendship. You know, you're not friends with your enemy. You don't have this kind of love with your, your enemy, but you can be patient and kind with your enemy. You can love them sacrificially. And so the flao love is a reciprocal love. You, you've got people in your life who you maintain a friendship because you guys communicate once in a while. If you don't communicate once in a while, then it kind of dies, unless there's a reason for you not communicating. I'll pick up a friend of mine from the airport in a couple of uh, weeks. He's the provost at uh, Grace College and Seminary. He and I are really great friends, but he lives in a different country. You know, he lives in Indiana. And I don't go there very often, so uh, when we see each other, we just suck the life out of each other. It doesn't affect our friendship, but we're, we're great friends. It's a reciprocal relationship, okay? Now, here, here's what you have to understand. Christ asked Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Great question, isn't it? Peter said, Lord, you know I follow you. Wow. Peter, do you love me sacrificially? Lord, you know you're my best friend. Christ said, uh, Peter, do you agape me? Peter said, well, Lord, you know I'm your best friend. The third time, Christ said, Peter, are you my best friend? Peter was hurt. Not because he'd asked him three times, but because the third time he asked him, he used his language. And it really, it really cut Peter to the core. What was Christ saying? The requirement to feed my sheep is to love me. The requirement to feed my sheep is to love me. 
I am the most important thing in your universe. I am the most important thing. And when you lose track of that, you lose ministry in the body of Christ. It is my body. And I contend that what happens in the Christian life as we grow is our love for the Savior dims. We become established in the Christian life. We become established. We know all these things. And we stop being excited. Our prayer life sometimes uh, wanes. We read the word academically, but we don't read the word as the living word of God that's being poured into our lives and changing our lives regularly. And we lose the capacity to make good decisions. Uh, I close with this passage. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi. He said, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, we will minimize in the Christian life because the enemy wants us to believe that it's not important, this whole issue of love. But it's key. Christ saved us because he loved us. He went to Calvary because he loved us. We were baptized into the body of Christ because he loved us and that love was formulated before the foundation of the earth. He has paid a huge price. He said, you know what? You can't even make good decisions unless you keep that love first and foremost in your life. Why? Because we walk out into a foreign country, a dark world, that doesn't understand love. And John said in 1 John that some people will only know God through your love for them. You follow what I'm saying? And, and we're in the worst time in America that we could be in right now. I believe that the church is going to go under great persecution in the next decade. And if we can't figure out this aspect, we will lose it all. For our goal is not to change the country. Our goal is not to be suspicious of everyone who walks through the door. These doors should be open to every sinner in the world. For Christ loves sinners. And we have a message to tell that no one else has. And and it's not our goal to be critical. It's not our goal to be an armed camp. It is our goal to love people until they're sick of being loved. Because we want to show them Christ. And as long as we will do that, we'll be a church of impact. I talked with Vishnu Ramratan this last week. He's the chaplain at the local prison. Uh, While going to Moody, he went to the Moody Church. Erwin Lutzer is the pastor there. He follows uh, five other pastors whose combined time at that church is over 130 years. That church is vibrant continues to grow, continues to serve the Lord. Why? They love the Savior. They love the Savior. And whenever an opportunity comes up, they remind themselves that Jesus paid the price for all of us. And we, like Peter, need to be able to look him in the face and say, Lord, I love you. You're not only my best friend, 
but you're the rock of my salvation. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the reminder that if we will keep doing these things that are important to you, and Jesus, we want to love you. We want to be in a relationship with you. We do not want to turn this church into a religion. We want to have it a relationship with you. And Father, we know that as long as we'll do those things, we'll please you. Give us a great day, we pray, of loving each other. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for coming.